Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This episode of Water for Fighting is brought to you by my friends at Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is the Southeast leading innovator in protecting coastal communities from devastating storms and restoring ecosystems that once faced ecological collapse. Visit their website at www.seaandshoreline.com. And Res is the nation's leader in ecological restoration, helping to restore Florida's natural resources with water quality and stormwater solutions that offer communities guaranteed performance and outcomes. Check them out at www.res.us. All right, let's get to this episode's esteemed guest and my friend, Pepperuccino. If you spent any time around the Capitol in the last 15 years, you've almost certainly gotten to know Pepper. Pepper has worked in the environmental field in Florida as an advocate, legislative staff, and even as a lobbyist at my beloved Anfield Consulting. He's currently the president of the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association, and I'm grateful he agreed to hang out with me and share a story. Pepper, thanks so much for making some time coming back to your old roost here at yeah. Anfield HQ. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Well, first, I mean, first things first, your name's not Pepper, at least your given first name That's is right. Pepper, but I've never heard anyone call you anything other than that, other than, you know, dad. Um, yeah. Where does the name come from? And more importantly, what does your mom call you? So my mom calls me Pepper. So the name, you know, I have a number of siblings and the name comes from when I was four years old, my sister and I were, were goofing around. She's, she's six years older than I am, so she's 10. We were going to church, but it wasn't like Christmas Easter church, you know, I mean, but it wasn't mm. just like regular Sunday church. I can't remember the occasion, but <laughs> so I don't remember necessarily being like this, but my mom said that when I was that age, I absolutely had to match like everything I dressed in had to match. So for whatever reason, whatever the occasion at church was, I was dressed up in like little red and white striped shirt with like a little white jacket and some like white pants and, you know, probably red socks or, you know, white shoes or something like that. And right. so my sister and I were, were goofing around waiting for the rest of the family and we were playing a, just a role playing game, like a go fetch game, you know, cause she was six years older than me. <laughs> and so she's like, you look like a peppermint stick. So we're going to call you pepper. And, and actually I'd never been called Steven. I was my, my nickname was Mickey hmm. and that's based on my Japanese middle name Makoto and so that was my anglicized nickname and uh, I guess it just didn't fit me I liked pepper better and so I started asking my family to call me by pepper and this goes to show you how strong a woman my mom was so when I entered kindergarten the kindergarten teacher refused to call me pepper she was like I'm not going to call him that she goes well I'm going to withdraw him from school so yes my mom calls me pepper the only time I ever vacillated and, and thought about going back to Stephen was when I hit law school and I thought is Pepper really professional? You know, I want to join this professional world of environmental policy. And, and should I go by Pepper? Should I not do it? And so I did a trial run of Stephen for two weeks, and it's like, it just didn't fit. You know, it didn't, it's not who I was. So, Also, I think there's probably uh, half a million Stevens that work in the Capitol yeah. these days. I think we know several of them. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it just a minute ago about your Japanese middle name. You're born in Chicago. Your story, and that's kind of what I'm excited about getting to, first off, is two places nowhere near Chicago, and that's Japan and California. In fact, the interest, interesting note for listeners is you're not only the descendant of the samurai, but also 
uh, Pilgrim from the Mayflower. I mean, those are two very <laughs> disparate groups there. Yeah. Let's talk about the Japanese side first. Yeah. Your father ended up in the U.S. after World War II. He was born in Japan during the war. Is that right? That's right, in 44. Yeah. How did he end up getting to the United States from Japan? So his his parents started what would become the largest hospital in Tokyo. And he was a commoner. And my, like I said, like you mentioned, my, my grandmother was the daughter, literally the daughter of a samurai. He, you know, when they were disbanded in the late 1860s. Yeah, he, you know, he, he was samurai at the time. And so it was kind of, you know, controversial for her to marry my, my grandfather, you know, but then they built this hospital and then the war came and essentially, you know, they lost everything in, in the war and, you know, had to rebuild it. But so essentially that, you know, they came from a line of medical, right? You know, all my uncles are, are medical. And so my father did medical school in Japan. And then another controversial thing is he came to the United States for his internship and residency. And that was really unheard of, you know, to leave like the family really back then. And, um, you know, it caused quite a rift actually, but he decided to, to come to the United States and do his, his residency here. Was there still a family business there in terms of medicine yeah. or? Yeah. You know, they, they did rebuild mm. and they still own it today. Did, you, did your grandparents survive the war? They did. Yeah, both of them. Uh, my grandfather died in like the ripe old age of 90 something Wow, from an injury from pruning trees. He was climbing trees in his 90s Wow, and fell out of the tree and, and ended up succumbing from those injuries. And then, you know, my grandmother I had turned it over the business a long time ago. She was the CFO, actually. So let's pause on, on her then. It's like, what was her uh, background, educationally speaking? You know, that is a good question. I do not know. You know, coming from Samurai, though, it, I, I could only surmise that she was pushed to excel. So, But I don't know the edu- educational background of her. But, you know, to be the CFO of this large hospital, you know, she must have, she must have taken significant educational steps like you know i just it's it's mm. beyond my knowledge though so. how many siblings did your parents have that were in japan your dad have my dad had I believe it was six of them i only visited once i really don't know that side of my family very well unfortunately I, i'm trying to get my kids over there to at least uh, mm-hmm. you know see them uh, my aunt lived with us for a while in connecticut Okay. So I'd love to go over and see her. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask is, yeah. is your dad came over, which, as you said, is like this unheard of. Yeah. Does that spill over into the others? Did they get a chance to come, you know, visit with your, your father when he came over, to, after he came over to the, to the U.S.? I met a few of them in Chicago. And then one time I met one of his brothers in Colorado. They were there for a medical conference, and I got to meet one of my cousins, actually. But the rest of them I, I had had to go to Japan, except for my aunt, who lived, like I said, lived with us for a short spell in, in Connecticut. And now your your mom's side of the family, she, yeah. she's from California. Yeah. You know, no one, unless you're Native American or you know Mexican, is from California yeah. originally. And right. so that I think therein lies the, the Mayflower story. Yeah. How did her family make it from Massachusetts to... California. I guess the sh- the shorter version is like what brought her, what brought her and you know her parents to California. Yeah. So uh, like you like you mentioned, so it's a direct descendant that goes back to the Mayflower, which is you know pretty fascinating. His name is Peter Brown. You can look him up. Uh, Brown with an E. My 
mom's dad's side of the family all settled throughout New England, very entrenched there in, in that area. And then after my grandfather and then my, my mom's mom, they were Irish immigrants. And so my great-great-grandfather came over from Ireland during the potato famine when, when they you know, literally could not afford to feed the, the family. And so he came over with 25 cents to his name and you know, then sought work. My grandfather, after college, he went to Dartmouth. It was, I believe it was you know, nearing the Depression, or it must not have been nearing. It must have been in the Depression. The only thing that I could find was gold mining. In California, so like that was it. So he he wow. he went from Massachusetts and followed work and ended up in California mining for gold. And uh, my my grandmother, my mom's mom, was already out there. She's you know from that area in, in Sacramento and California. And her parents had died, and she got shipped around to different varying various family members. And they both kind of you know as as these things happen, mm-hmm. they found their way to a, a chance meeting at a little a little diner that she was waiting tables at and and he was over he was over there on the west coast and uh they got married two weeks later my parents got married i think they knew each other six weeks i mean i don't want to dwell on the negative side of the family dynamics i mean it's a fascinating story i mean both sides of the family but it's happened all too often you know married folks split up and it takes you back to new england with your mom right that's right yeah she wanted to be closer to family uh, my parents split up when I was, you know, like 18 months or something. I was like, a, like you said, I was born in Chicago, only lived there for about 18 months. And then, oh. yeah, we found our way back to New England in Connecticut, a little tiny town called Woodbridge, Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, tell me about Woodbridge. Cause I, I mean, the whole, the whole arc of the, you know, of these <laughs> conversations is I want to find out how you got from Chicago to you know, to the Florida Senate, to these other things that we're going to talk about in a bit. So talk about uh, Woodbridge. Was it, you said it's a small place, like, yeah. but it, you know, uh, woodsy. You know. Oh, yeah. So it's it's right to the northwest of New Haven. So if you know where New Haven is, kind of in the foot of Connecticut, kind of about an hour away from New York City or so, roughly. Little town. When I left, I think there were 7,800, 7,900 people. And now there are maybe 9,800 people. <laughs> Uh, and I left in 1990. So, yeah, but so, you know, we found our way back in, in Woodbridge and yeah, it's woodsy, you know, I mean, it's like this little residential, sleepy neighborhood outside New Haven. And I grew up in this old haunted Victorian house, <laughs> our home backed up to woods. And I, you know, tromped all over those, those woods in the summers. And there were little ponds and stuff that we would ice skate in the winter and, you know, play hockey in the winter and stuff like that. I mean, like, it's really idyllic, you know. Yeah, in terms of kind of being in nature and one with nature, that's where it really developed for me. As you can imagine, you know, it's tough to do that in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk about your mom because I think she probably was a, a pretty large influence in that regard. But you try to gloss over pretty quickly the uh, the haunted part of your house. <laughs> was it known to be haunted or was it, hey, these weird things happen and so... I'm a kid, and I assume the house is haunted. So, yeah, I'm a kid, and I'm assuming these things were it was haunted. But everybody in the house, else in the household, also assumed it was haunted. I mean, you know, crazy stuff. For instance, like you know, for those of us that are listening that are old enough to remember how you would have to walk up to a TV and pull on mm-hmm. the knob to like turn it on, right, and yeah. then turn the channel, <laughs> the UHF and VHF channel. So. My mom was at home one time and the TV turned on and changed channels and she was like watching it happen. So and more times than I can remember 
lights turning on, doors shutting. Somebody would be, you know, walking up the stairs and you'd go and look and there'd be nobody there. The piano would make noises. Shower would come on. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is that is the house still standing? The house is still standing. Yeah, it was built. The, the records start in 1906 because there was a fire that destroyed some of the earlier records in the Woodbridge Town Hall. So we have a picture dated to 1906 that shows the house standing. So it was, you know, from that time, somewhere around that time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and that was super fun, by the way, growing up in a Well, I mean, house. was it? I mean, were you... No, was... I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I mean, I can imagine. It's like, yeah. you know, now I'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. When you're, you know, when you're a kid, it's got to be yeah. insane. So I lived on the third floor with my brother. There okay. were two rooms and bathroom up there. I used to hear people coming up the stairs at night. All the time. They would wake me up because, you know, it's a hundred-year-old house and the stairs creak and whatnot. You'd hear somebody coming up the stairs and, like, wow. you know nobody's there. But somebody's coming up the stairs, right? So that's kind of freaky. So, all right. We push forward past the, the heart. Now I can see why you spent so much time outside. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you didn't want to be in, in the house with ghosts walking up the stairs toward you. So, interest in the environment. Yeah. You know, it seemed like it naturally. It seemed like it was also inherent to your family. Your mom was like the head of the local Sierra Club chapter, right? Yeah, the New Haven Sierra Club chapter. Yeah. And how did, I mean, how did she, was that when she got involved in it or had she always been someone that, that was involved in, whether it was that kind of group or other civic groups? Yeah. So, you know, she, she's a, a product of the sixties, mm-hmm. you know, that whole social movement, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. those issues that are larger than oneself, she was always engaged in those things. And so I think probably the environment was a, a natural fit for her when we moved to Connecticut. And that'll come in, I think, to, to play later on. I don't want to talk about it when we get to when we get to Florida, but but beforehand, because not not that because it defines your entire life. It's like, but at around middle school, because it's important to us, is you discovered that you had some pretty significant physical challenge. I guess starting around middle school. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like late sixth grade. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. So starting in the second half of sixth grade. I started really getting terrible, terrible migraines. And it wasn't so bad. Like, you know, I'd miss maybe three days out of a month or something with school. And toward the latter half of sixth grade, they started to progress a little bit worse and still manageable. But, you know, when I got them, they were debilitating. And then seventh grade hit and, you know, I managed to suffer through a lot of seventh grade. And I went to this pretty elite private school in New Haven called the Hopkins Grammar Day Prospect Hill School <laughs> for any of those that know Fancy. what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we had to work with them to, you know, get my schoolwork and stuff like that. And I was falling behind. And then during this time, we're trying to figure out what's happening. And the we didn't know it was allergies yet. And we were at Yale New Haven Hospital all the time. They were running all sorts of tests. And eventually what they settled on is they thought it was an unimageable brain tumor that was causing these. Mm. They couldn't find it, but all the symptoms were indicative of that, which obviously for a you know, 12-year-old is terrifying. Right. So eighth grade rolls around, and you know, we're trying to manage the symptoms, and they're trying to still you know, do tests, and I had more CAT scans than I could care to remember. Eighth grade, it really starts to go downhill quickly. And my mom's kind of at her wit's end, and, you know, remember she's, you know, she's a single mom, right. right? You know, and, and, you know, I'm the youngest of the, of the family and just couldn't figure out what was going on and managing the symptoms was just really no longer an option. And I more or less, 
I was still enrolled in school, but I just really couldn't attend school. And I don't remember what it was, but somebody was like, has anybody checked him for allergies? And, you know, the answer, of course, was no. You know, nobody had checked. And so I went in for an allergy panel. And so those are the ones that they do, like the little skin pricks. Right. Right. You know, they do a control and then, you know, the skin pricks. And so they did 40. And it's from scale from, you know, no reaction, zero to to 10 plus. Mm -hmm. I think it was like 32, 10 plus. Wow. It was ragweed and oak and maple and you name it. The environment was killing me. Wow. And so so the, the allergist said, well, you either have to move to Arizona or you got to move to say, uh, South Lake Okeechobee because mm-hmm. that's you know the the different temperate you know the different regions climate regions and those were the areas where the stuff that I was allergic to wasn't really growing and my sister was playing tennis down in South Florida she didn't sold the house she she had done nothing and she just said all right we're shipping you down and so in the middle of eighth grade she shipped me down to South Florida to Broward County wow did she follow pretty soon thereafter she did yeah like- she sold the house and 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 all that and then she followed pretty pretty soon after. And so you're in Florida, I think Broward County to be exact, is it Fort Lauderdale, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so even at that point, so you're in Florida, but even then there were times where you're unable to attend school, right? So I finished up eighth grade and re- I mean, really the, the change from Connecticut to South to Broward County, the change in my health was nearly immediate. Like it was startling how quickly once I didn't have those allergens, mm. you know, my body just attacking myself essentially how quickly everything cleared up. And so I did eighth grade down there. And, you know, shockingly, I was actually still ahead when I went to Broward <laughs> from, from where I'd been in Connecticut. And so we were looking for other options. And I settled at Pinecrest School in Fort Lauderdale. And I was there for ninth grade. And my, my mom had started a job and quickly rose to the ranks and then got transferred to Jacksonville. So after my ninth grade year, she was transferred to Jacksonville. And so, yeah, I'm a little kid, right? <laughs> you know, all my all my siblings are older. And yeah. so I, I moved with her to Jacksonville. And, you know, nearly immediately I get sick again. It's too far north, right? A lot of those things that mm-hmm. I was sick and I was still in. Uh, what we realized, it was like a puberty onset thing with my allergies that my systems were going haywire. And so incredible. I was still in the middle of it. And, uh, yeah, I got incredibly sick and ended up attending 10th grade by phone. Like with all the other sick kids that had like leukemia and like all, all the other diseases where they had no immune systems and I had to call into my classes. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even know such a thing exists. Now it's kind of common. You have virtual school and you know, yeah. and, and obviously COVID presented its own uh, new world. And yeah. but it's like I had no idea that was a thing in the eighties. You know. Yeah, so it would have been right. It would have been ninety, ninety one, ninety two. But yeah, close to the eighties, and it was. I mean, literally, like a dial up phone. You know, and I had a headset like. You know, I was working the phones. <laughs> right. And I did. I did my school there. Let me tell you, geometry over the phone is not not fun. I can I can imagine it wasn't fun even when I was there. Uh, yeah. I mean, did that? You said when you when you got to Florida, you were still ahead. Thankfully, did this stunt it as well, or was there already kind of this ingrained focus on education in your family, and your mom was a big part of that, or or you were just a pretty good student? Didn't matter where you were. You know, I, I think it was the, fir- the, the former, not the, not the latter. Uh, and I, I will have to say that that one year of Pinecrest also put me back, you know, back on track, mm. right, from from the, the losses that I had in early middle school. So, you know, went to Pinecrest. Yeah, I was a little bit behind Pinecrest, and I was able to catch up by the end of the year. And then, you know, went to 
went to Jacksonville. And, um, you know, honestly, thankfully for Duval County to even have that sort of program back then. So I was able to at least keep up. And then my mom was still up there and she's like, you're going back to South Florida. And uh, my sister was actually playing tennis kind of semi-professionally back then. And so my only option was boarding school. Hmm. And so I, luckily Pinecrest School has had, no longer has, but had a boarding a program. And so she shipped me back down there in 11th grade, and I, I finished up my high school down there. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, where, where are you going to be finishing? Yeah, it was at Pinecrest School. I finished 11th, 12th grade. All right, let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. When I say the names Andrew, Ian, Irma, and Michael, what immediately enters your mind? If you answered hurricanes, congratulations, you're a Floridian. We all know that hurricanes bring devastating wind, rain, and storm surge. What you may not already know is that my friends at Sea and Shoreline are the leading innovators in the quest to mitigate the destructive wave energy of storm surges with their patented wave attenuation devices, or WADs. Not only can WADs protect against the effects of storm surge, they can also protect our beaches and shorelines from the massive erosion events that tropical storms and hurricanes bring. In fact, WADs have been shown to increase shoreline accretion. That's right. Their technology can help build shorelines. Sea and Shoreline is committed to protecting and preserving Florida's communities and coastlines because they are Floridians, and these are their communities too. To find out how you can partner with Sea and Shoreline to protect your community, visit them at www.seaandshoreline.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And so during that whole time, you're, you know, you're a sick kid. The outdoors is trying to kill you. You still love the outdoors during that time, didn't, I do. didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Talk, I mean, talk about growing up. I mean, what were those things? I mean, Floridians, it's a different world yeah. you know, than elsewhere. What were those kinds of things that you enjoyed about the outdoors? Whether it be, you know, and I assume mostly Southeast Florida, when you get to Northeast, you, know, yeah. you got sick again. Yeah. So, I didn't but, explore much up there at all. Yeah. Talk about the things that you enjoyed doing. Yeah. You know, so it definitely goes back to, to Woodbridge. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, my, my generation, our generation, generation X, they've been called the last of the feral children. Right. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that moniker, yeah. but yeah, I mean, literally there used to be an announcement on the news at 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Right. <laughs> I mean, that would be, you'd lose your mind if you were a parent today. And I am a parent. Like if I didn't know where my kid was, yeah. you know, I'd lose my mind, but it was a different time, you know, just a different time. And so if you came back for dinner and your feet were dirty and you had to, you know, quickly jump in the shower and eat dinner, right? You know, mm-hmm. but like you spent your time outdoors. Yeah. You spent your time outdoors, whether that was on a bike or tromping, you know, tramping around the woods, you know, whatever it was, you know, down by the water hole fishing or whatever it was, you spent your time outside. Yeah. And so that really did, I mean, that, the Sierra Club stuff that my mom was interested mm-hmm. or, you know, running back then. I remember one time, one of the most memorable things for me about the, the Connecticut experience was one time we went and we preserved an Indian, a sacred Indian area. And, uh, she was there to, and you know, other luminaries were there Mm -hmm. to, to open it. And I just thought like, how amazing is this? Mm -hmm. You know, like we are there to preserve this forevermore. And this is something sacred to these people, you know, that that's fantastic. And so, you know, when I get to South Florida, everything was different. You know, we, we don't have, 
the woods and you know and it, the closest <laughs> you have is you know like everglades or something like that but i didn't even know about the everglades when i was in ninth grade uh, i mean i of course i knew about it but you know not, <laughs> not i had never been there right. it was more of an idea you know concept than something concrete but i really discovered my love of the ocean in high school and we used to play beach volleyball and i used to do some free diving you know scuba diving every everything that revolved around the ocean. sailing you know what i mean my brother was yeah. a huge sailor and so we used to sail a bunch and so when i came to florida it just it was so different that i didn't I, I i just couldn't fall in love with it but that came quickly after spending some time in the outdoors in florida is that why it stuck with you, you when you graduated from high school you you left pinecrest and you you go to the university of miami and not just for undergrad you stuck around for for graduate school is that why you know that you chose that was because of the proximity to those natural features or was it hey this is a good school i want to go to miami a little bit of both a little bit of both part of it is you know like i said you know group kind of finished my growing up my adolescence in fort lauderdale and wanted to continue just like when you're around the ocean, you just need to be around the ocean. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to leave the ocean. I like I thought about going and pursuing business in some of the other northeastern schools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just couldn't stomach being away from the water. I mean, like, you just fall in love with it. You know what I mean? Like, right. if if you love the water, you got to be near it. And so, yeah, that was part of the calculus in going to Miami. I mean, it was a good school back then. I wanted to do business. So, yeah, I went to business school there and I really, I mean, the environment was still in the back of my head. I hadn't really crossed my mind to make a career out of it yet. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, I went to undergrad for, for business. I even thought about doing medicine. Actually. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing is like, what was the plan? I was like, well, one is you just say business and then you say yeah. medicine is what was the plan? Just, hey, I want to be successful at something. So, you know, interesting enough, I really, really enjoy advertising. Uh, marketing so i did that that's kind of where i geared my my business my undergrad was marketing and in business and i got a minor in my creative writing you know and 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 my degree was in marketing Hmm. so i was really gearing my career towards advertising and so after after graduating i worked a little bit in the field and it was just incongruent with my values you know to try to convince somebody to spend or want or you know this <laughs> consumer driven and i just it didn't it didn't fit with me and so at that time i stepped back from what i was doing and reevaluated everything and that's when i decided to go to, to complete a master's in, a, in my law degree where i really focused on environmental issues I, I, that was the point that that was the jumping off point for my career yeah that that uh that story reminds me of, do you remember the John Cusack movie, Say Anything? Yeah. Yeah. There's that scene where he, t- where he talks about all the things he doesn't want to do. Yeah. So you you, you reevaluate yeah. and then you go, you say, okay, law school is the place for me. What was the yeah. idea? I mean, what, you know, what was the plan in your mind? I just want to do something related to the environment. I want to help. What, what, what was the, what was the reason? So I was one of those kids that, and I think, again, this, I think this goes back to growing up with my mom, with what she was doing, you know, Sierra Mm -hmm. Club policy, right? You know, she was, you know, one of the things they were doing is sprawl back then, you know, Mm -hmm. and trying to preserve places. And, you know, I was one of those kids that thumbed through the New York Times, you know, (laughs) on a a Tuesday afternoon from when I came home from school. And so that always is just bouncing around back there. Like, you know, I was interested in the happenings of 
what was, you know, the world and the policy of yeah. things. Wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned your mother again. Was she still involved in that kind of advocacy, you know, in Florida or was she too busy for it? You picked up that mantle. What was she doing around then? Yeah, so she she was not involved in that sort of stuff anymore. Not for lack of care, but just for lack of time. Mm. You know, it was the the move was hard on everybody. And so, it, you know, when she came back down to when not back, when she came to Florida, you know, it was kind of a all right, what do we do from here now? And so those sort of things didn't necessarily she didn't have time for for th- those sort of things anymore. Mm. Not that like I said, not for not not for lack of care, just sure, just couldn't happen at that time, right? I mean, and then and she was dealing with a sick kid. You know, I was sick for eighteen months. You yeah, know? so all those things sort of fell to the back burner. Yeah, I mean, complicated lives. That's yeah, for, that's for darn sure. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, to that point though, is you pick up this mantle, profe- professionally even like yeah. you, you. So you finish your education, and you do environmental stuff. You do environmental yeah. law, and now you go straight to. The trust for public. Oh yeah, let me tell you about what yeah. I, the so the thing that prompted me to go do a joint degree. So I got a master's of marine affairs and policy, and then a law degree, and I focused on Everglades. And the whole reason for that was rather than being conceptual, the Everglades became very real to me. And you know, I studied in back in high school in in my senior year, just kind of because I was interested in the topic. Dexter Lightning's lawsuit that kicked off. Everglades restoration. Hmm. <laughs> that was the lawsuit. And so when I stepped back and wanted to reevaluate what I wanted to do in my career, it was policy driven. It's not necessarily law, but I knew that law can develop policy. And Dexter Lightning's lawsuit was, you know, was the, the model for that for me. And so I wanted to have both tracks available to me. Hmm. So, yeah, so I, you know, I did that. And then right out of law school, well, I finished up my master's and, you know, passed all my exams and whatnot. My first real opportunity to kind of be in this world was at the Trust for Public Land up here in Tallahassee. Yeah. And and for folks that don't already know, what is the Trust for Public Land and what do they do? So the, the Trust for Public Land is a 50-state nonprofit that focuses on kind of urban landscapes. And uh, I was brought up to be in the Tallahassee office, not the Florida office, but it was based on the same building, literally the same building. And I was brought up to be a project manager on land deals. And literally within, that was December of 07. And literally within two weeks, our director of government affairs announced he was leaving for a new position. And my my state director at the time said, hey, you have an interest in this policy stuff, right? And I said, i Indeed, I do. I do have. And so I really didn't even do the project management stuff. I was just getting my feet wet, starting to figure wow. out what the project management role even was before I transitioned into the interim director of government affairs for, for TPL Florida. How do you wade into it at that point? You're, you're a, a Southeast Florida guy. Yeah. Your emphasis is on the Everglades. There's some of that related to there's like, but what was that like? I mean, being kind of thrown to the fire. I really have to, one of my mentors, I, I have to thank him, and I can't thank him enough, is Lester Abiger. Mm. And his brother, Will Abiger, still works at the Trust for Public Land. And Lester really took me under his wing. And, I mean, in a literal sense, physical sense, walked me around the halls of the <laughs> Capitol where I had no idea what was going on. I, you know, I'd never been to the Capitol before. 
And uh, I mean, it was a little bit trial by fire. And so Trust for Public Land's big thing there was Florida Communities Trust funding Mm -hmm. based out of Florida Forever. A lot of their funding, well, not direct funding, but a lot of their land purchasing power came from FCT. You know, it's a more urban, it's not those large landscapes, but it's it's a more urban Mm -hmm. settings for those. And and so that was my role really was to my first, (laughs) my first real thing was get Florida Forever reauthorized and also protect Florida community stress funding as part of the, you know, the breakdown in, mm. in percentages from, from the, from the law. Right. And so you're, I mean, you're, so you're doing this, yeah. you're, you're learning as you go, you yeah. say, you know, Lester's a, a huge help and he is, yeah. he's a, you know, a real, a real veteran of the, of the process. At what point do you go from, cause you're now you go from, Hey, I want to learn how to help. I want to be in this role where we make things happen and advocate yeah. for the, and then, it turns to who did you have a conversation with where you thought, you know what I want to go do? I'm go work in the Senate. I, I wish it was a conversation. It was more like your hand is forced. So I started at Trust for Public Land in December of 2007. If you remember what happened in 2008, the cliff fell, you know, the, the cliff right. fell out or the, the bottom fell out of the economy. And the Trust for Public Land funded, at least it did. I, you know, I don't know how they do it anymore. And I knew they were, I know they were trying to diversify back then, but they funded a large part of their part of the funding came from land deals and getting donations from landowners. And you know, the tax revenues fell. Out. Nobody was doing land buying. You know, there was no the prices were dirt cheap, but nobody was doing it because there was no cash. And so, I was only one of two government affairs positions in the entire country. Now, I didn't run half the country. I just ran Florida. But we, there was only one other in the Trust for Public Land that did any other state legislative office work right. or state legis- you know, state capital work. And they were where? Where's that other person? Oh, I, I want to say Arizona, but don't hold me that to that. Okay. It was somewhere out west. And, you know, corporate is shedding cash like crazy. And so they're looking to cut positions. So when I started the Trust for Public Land, I think I was the 27th or 28th person in my in, in this building up here. And by the time... The final round of layoffs came, which I got caught up in. Hmm. I think there were seven, seven people left in the office. So you're like, how did it happen? It, it happened because I had just bought a house. My wife had just, let me think, my wife had just given birth and I needed a job. Oh, and wow. I was looking for anything that I could find that was policy related, like environmental policy related. And there was an opening in environmental preservation and conservation in the Senate and so my last day at TPL was a Monday, and my first day in the Senate was a Wednesday. When when was that? Like what time of the year it's was 2009, that? February 2009. <laughs> so just before session, of course. Yeah, and here's oh. the thing. <laughs> so I asked, so if any, if any of you all out there know the name Wayne Kiger, you will have some sort of reaction to that name. And I asked him, he's like, okay, can you start on Tuesday? And I was like, can I just have one day mm. now, you know not even really appreciating that one day pre-session is you know can be a lifetime so yeah. thank you wayne for giving me that one day yeah i mean <laughs> and just to bring that as i clarify it's like wayne kiger was the staff director he was the staff director of which committee environmental preservation and conservation right and so yes he is um he's a guy that's a wonderful person but yeah. all business that's for sure all business business yeah and his voice is about an octave lower than ours. So yeah, I started. I started as a staff attorney and analyst at in the, in the winter of two thousand nine at the Senate. 
Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why Res uses an innovative approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. Res actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland, to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between. They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, Res upholds long-term stewardship practices, guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www.res.us. All right, now back to the conversation. Yeah, and I think most people listening to a water and environmental podcast know that session starts, at least back then, it always started the, at the beginning of March. Yeah. And so you're getting right. It, committee meetings are already going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bills are bills have been filed. You're handed. I, I assume you're handed. What was your? Do you remember your first bill? That, oh, you know that's such a good question. I don't. I don't remember. You know, talk about being thrown into the fire. As committee staff, and any of you have ever been out there that know this, that those weeks leading up to session and those first probably three to four weeks are just the most intense right. weeks you can possibly imagine. Other so than no, I don't. I don't remember what that first bill was. Other than law school, like in, in those times, you know, in the, if you work in the legislature, that is, it's the Super Bowl. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a string of months both before, you know, and then during, and then of the short period after session. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a madhouse for for staff there. It is, and in fact, my wife uh, would claim that she's a session widow. Right, and she did. Yeah, yeah, and there, I mean, there's so many families that go through that. Yeah. on our still on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, folks that we know, but beyond the the hectic, harried nature of going in a session, being new to some place anyway, any any place, there's also a difference in the role that you took going from the trust for public land to a place where staff are trained. You know, I wouldn't say beaten into you. It's like, but. It, it becomes ingrained that you are not there to advocate. You work at the direction of whoever's your chair and the Senate president, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Was there any dissonance there or was it, uh, it's too crazy for me to figure out, you know, what I think about any of this anyway. I'm just going to gonna get through it. Yeah. What was that like? So I don't know if there was any time to even think about that. What I will say is for somebody that loves policy, there's no better place, mm. right? I mean, I didn't even have time to appreciate just what an opportunity that was. I was grateful for the opportunity, but I didn't have time to appreciate mm. just what an amazing opportunity that is to be literally in the belly of the beast, right? You know, I mean, it's different working on the inside. Yeah. It's just different. The dissonance, I don't, I don't know if I even had time to develop at TPL in order for me to have any dissonance in there. It was like, you know, I went from not knowing what the heck I was doing 
to being in the Senate, not knowing <laughs> what the heck was coming. You know, <laughs> just right. the pace is so fast. And, you know, you just, I, you just jump right into it. And I have to say that, thank goodness for my law degree, mm-hmm. because when you're analyzing law or analyzing bills for impacts, I, I even though I never had a traditional law practice, boy, did I use that every single day, mm. <laughs> you know, every day was just, I was so thankful for my law degree. Yeah. There were times I can remember that I yeah, felt like I could have used a little bit more training <laughs> before I, I did that sort of thing. Did that carry over the, so you go in, you're a staff attorney going in, yeah. Wayne's the boss. Yeah. And, but it, how long was it before Wayne left? And then again, you were put in, it's, it's different. It's different being a staff attorney yeah. and being the person who has to work directly with the yeah. chair yeah. and the president's office to manage a calendar. So what was that like? So Wayne was there for, let me think, he left during the Herodopolis term. And President Herodopolis, that, again, if you remember, that was Great Recession time. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, the, the revenues coming in were just minimal. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. You know, they were, they were bare, yeah. bare bones. And so the staff was not immune to that. And so there were lots of staff cutbacks and President Herodopolis put a couple of the sister committees under one staff director and EPC, Environmental Preservation and Conservation and Community Affairs were two of those mm. sister committees that went under one staff director. So Tom Yeaman was the staff director at that point over those two committees. And I took on a larger role in the committee during those times, you know, because literally you can't be staff director of two committees, you know, I mean, in, as, as not fate, but as history would show, after Herodopolis's term, mm-hmm. when we had a little bit more revenues coming to the state, we immediately went back to one staff director, one committee. I mean, I would say if, if anyone could manage two committees at once, it could be Tom. But it's still, I, you know, you, you're serving two staff, I mean, two chairs. Right. You know, it's, it's where are the, our committees, like I said, they're sister committees. It may have even been better if they weren't sister committees because our bills are going back and forth between the chairs and the chair's like, so why isn't this moving? <laughs> you know, and you, of course you know, but, but uh, you, you know, you can't go against, how do you please two masters, you know, in that yeah. situation? So it just didn't, it just didn't work out. But it's, I know it's frustrating for people from the outside, not understanding what your actual job is. Cause your job is to, you're working directly for uh with and with members to help make products better but in the end it is up to your chairman it is up to the senate president and it's like having a secret a constant stream of secrets (laughs) that you're not allowed to tell anyone else about is that i always felt that that was a negative like i always felt bad you know i mean committee staff and you can't tell someone you are doomed Right. Um, yeah. How did you handle that? Yeah, that is very well put. It's, yeah, it is this constant. So let me just back up. You work at the pleasure of the president, mm-hmm. right? If you're in the house, you work at the pleasure of the speaker. If you're lucky, and I was, you work hand in glove with your chair. And, I, you know, I when I became staff director, I got the amazing Senator Charlie Dean, mm-hmm. sheriff, as, as my chair. And, you know, my, I, I have a feeling, and I've talked to several people about this, that my experience with Senator Dean as my chair was fairly unique at, and just how closely we were able to work together. 
And that's not always the case with some staff directors and, and chair. But, you know, in the end of it, you're right. You work at the center. You know, you work at the pleasure of the president. And the Senate is they also allow a, a bit more autonomy, I would say, in the chairs. And uh, and they're known for that. I mean, that's not a secret. For, you know, they're, they're sure. known for that. And, and presidents typically say that, you know, in public, you know, that the chairs have the direction of the overall direction, but it's at their pleasure, right? You mm-hmm. know, now I think circumstances may change from year to year, but, you know, overall, that's, that's the sure. general, that's the general feeling of it. So not only do you work at the pleasure of the president and your chair, but you have 38 other senators that you're working for. And we were always given the latitude to work with whoever needed help. And as professional nonpartisan staff, right, I think that's a really valuable service. <laughs> and you ask John Phelps and, you know, others that have been in this process for a long time that go to other, you know, the NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures, you know, Florida's looked at, at a model for that of mm-hmm. how good our professional staff is. And, you know, I'm really proud of that to be part of that heritage. So, yes, though, you, you know, you're working on this and you're working on that and they may be at odds and you're not talking to anybody. Right. right. You know, there is that, you know, you're definitely keeping your cards close to your vest. Yeah. And, you know, that can be difficult sometimes. And sometimes some of those things don't necessarily work out in the end. And, you know, but that, that's the, that's the nature of the work. Yeah. I think one more note on your particular, your chairman, tell people where Charlie Dean was from and tell them what he did before he was a legislator. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was a sheriff down in, it was at Citrus, I guess. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, the the good old boy moniker, you know what I mean? He was a mountain of, is, is a mountain of a man. I, I say was because, you know, I'm no longer working with him. But, you know, he's a mountain of a man. And the stories he would tell were legend. And he, the one thing you could say about Charlie Dean is that he was the most honest arbiter of information and the most loyal person that you could ever hope for in the Senate. I mean, you know, just incredible, just incredible. And working with him was, you know, I mean, it was some of the best years of my life was working with Charlie Dean. And, and his staff, by the way, his staff was amazing. Yeah, they were, they were weren't yeah. they? Yeah. And that's, I mean, but that's something that's not all that common. Or people, I think people think as well that it's rare. It's like, but you and, and I say all this to say that, you know, his background in your background, the two of you zero in common. <laughs> yeah, but it's but the the safety of being able to do your job, knowing yeah. that somebody you know has your back, I think is a is a big deal. It's a big deal, and it helped. Yeah. In and I say that because it helped in doing some pretty for a sheriff from the center of the state to do some pretty significant environmental. Yeah. Policy. Yeah. While you were there, give an example or two of that. So, yes, it was a unique experience. And I, I will say the the staff that I had also in mm-hmm. at EPC. So, you know, Stephanie and Kim and Eric, uh, it was like family. Yeah. You know, if you don't <laughs> if you don't feel like family after you come out of experience like that, then, you, you know, you're not going to last long in the, in the legislature because you, you literally you can be there until three, four, five in the morning, right? You know, so so none of the work that I was able, you know, that I was able to accomplish there was in a vacuum. It was always with 
the chair and his staff, you know, Nick and Drew and others, and, you know, Kim and Eric and Stephanie, it was literally, like, literally the best team you could ever ask for in order to accomplish some of this stuff. And we did some really amazing things. Indian River Lagoon, Lake Okeechobee Basin Select Committee was under my watch. Springs Protection was under my watch. I ended up writing the rewrite of the water bill that ended up passing the year after I left the legislature, mm-hmm. but in large part, you know, it was, it was the Senate's, it was the Senate's positions that I, you know, I was able to put pen to paper with uh, Jake Varn actually. So yeah, I mean, fracking was, you know, some, nothing, nothing ever happened to that, but boy, were those some long, hard hours to trying to figure out fracking in the state of Florida. Deepwater Horizon, you know, was during my tenure, but that was early on when I was the attorney analyst. I'm just trying to think. I mean, it was brownfields, you know. It was just yeah. like so much. The Everglades, you know, the, the re-up of the Everglades agricultural farming privilege, you know, was was during that time. A lot of huge, huge things. And a lot of things that are still going on, you know. The, mm-hmm. the spring protection, the $50 million that goes to spring protection that we were able to get back then, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's still going on. And it's just having amazing benefits for for springs. Yeah. Yeah. So these are all things that just, I mean, if you're on the outside, you can advocate for it, but on the inside, you're developing. Right. And so, I mean, the the natural question, you have people who are lifers. I mean, they're people that, that have you know, been there. The Wayne Tigers of the world have spent many years yeah. um, in the institution. You and Tommy Aitman's, right? You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't want to gloss over completely your transition from there, but I, you know, but it's, it's to the place where, you know, where I work. And so I don't want, I don't become, you know, an advertisement for, um, for what I do for a living. I want to hear about, about yeah. you, but yeah. I do want to hear quickly about what that transition was like to going from that position that you're in yeah. as professional staff to lobbying and consulting on the, the private side of the house and the difference in that, that relationship and the adjustment there. Yeah, so seven sessions in the Senate and three of them as staff director, three, or, you know, I don't know. It was weird because, again, those that, those those weird years where we had one staff director, but like I said, I took on a larger role. So it just came to a point where, you know, I started at the Senate, and I don't know if any of you all know, but University of Miami Law School, a master's is not cheap, and <laughs> I had my second kid, and the single biggest expense of my budget every year were my student loans followed by daycare followed by my mortgage so it just came to a point where i could no longer advance Mm. i would have stayed in the senate probably my entire career i would have been a lifer i really would have and i think they've recognized it since and kind of adjusted course now when i've seen some of the opportunities that newer people have come in and that's great because you need the best people there. You don't need the leftovers. <laughs> you right. literally need the best people in those positions. So I'm really happy to see that. But at the time, again, because we were coming off of really depressed wages and, you know, I think we were yeah. still feeling the effects of the Great Recession and it just wasn't a tenable position to be for me sure. anymore. I just couldn't couldn't do it. So, you know, I, I had to look for other opportunities and, you know, I had a number of opportunities and... The one that I ended up selecting was was Anfield. <laughs> yeah. And how long how long were you there? Four years. That's a that's quite a while. So a chance yeah. to, to a chance to really learn really a different uh, almost oh, a completely yeah. different skill set. Talk point, about right? dissonance from earlier. Right. Yeah. 
now it's dissonance. <laughs> I mean, give a give an example. I mentioned before that uh, being professional staff in the legislature is like having a secret. Yeah, yeah. And and now you're on the outside trying to, you know, Da Vinci code. Yeah. You know your way yeah. through to figure out what's happening because you're you're dealing with you know uh, you know Ellen now. Yeah. Uh, in the role you know at EPC. And trying to figure out, and she's also very good at her job. And she is, so she's a, she's a Tom Yateman acolyte, <laughs> right? And so talk about, I mean, talk about an example. So the, you know, the interesting thing is I had that two-year lobbying ban and it was, it's, it's so strict that I even thought about challenging the ethics ruling on allowing me to lobby the house and not lobby the Senate because and this is, this is, God's honest truth. I was sitting in the back of a budget presentation in the back of the committee room. This is now I'm at, I'm at Anfield. I'm literally just monitoring the budget hearing for the firm because I know I can't lobby. I'm sitting there. There's no votes taken. There's nothing, anything. You cannot, you know, influence anything. And I did not realize that under the strict definition of lobbying, I was lobbying at that time. So just going to sit in a budget hearing with no action taken is considered lobbying under the ethics rules. So, you know, after that, you know, I'm really divorced from the process completely. After being in the beating heart of environmental policy, I'm out. I'm out, right? And that is tough. For somebody that loved every minute, I literally never, ever woke up and wanted to call in sick to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Not once, ever. And so to 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 go from that to then not even being able to step foot in a committee room is really crazy. Yeah. It's really crazy. And so yeah, that that's that's where it is. And like you said, that the whole secret thing, right? You know, after I was able, you know, after my ban was up and I could start to lobby again. Not again, but I could start to lobby. You know, you go in and you're, you know, you're pitching. You're pitching your ideas. You're, you're, you know, you're pitching your language. Yeah. And on the other side, I'm like, all right, this language is garbage. I, you know, it's never going to see the light of day. You know, I know my chair is not going to want this or da, 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 right? And you say, thank you very much. I'll take this. I'll bring it right. to the chair, and right? You know, you know, it's it's DOA. Right. And then as somebody coming on the outside, <laughs> you go in and in my head, I'm like, well, is this DOA? Is it not DOA? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. Right. And so you do your best. And that is very disconcerting as as a lobbyist, you know, because you have the inside baseball knowledge from previous, but then the rules have changed, you know, or maybe the rules have changed. But you know what I mean? Like now you don't know anymore, right? You you don't have you don't have the insider knowledge. And so are you effective? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the I think I think people have some sort of weird notion that that you have this key to unlock every door and everyone's mm. going to tell you like and that's being an effective. So I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think for someone like you, wouldn't it be? I understand the process of an idea making it to a, a finished product yeah. being implemented. Yeah. Better than anyone else. Right. Than anyone else that, you know that's working in the Senate at this point. Yeah. And so that's that's what you provide is folks outside of Tallahassee don't know, right? It's like it's you were <laughs> you were explaining to them you're you're giving someone else a, a bit of the inside look. Here's how this actually works. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a fascinating process. I would imagine if you so in the past I've heard 
conversation, you know, had conversations with lobbyists that it's about the win, right? It's all about the win. And that's one way to approach. That's one way to approach it. And for me, what was difficult, like I said, is it's about the policy. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't care if I got recognized. You know, if I went and had some little secret squirrel ability to, you know, hand somebody a, a slip <laughs> to get good policy. I don't need to go and announce the world. Hey, look what I got in, right? You know, right. look. So for me, it's always been about the policy. So yeah, and it's for somebody looking on the outside in, it's got to look like a mess. <laughs> I don't. I can't even imagine. You know, it's like once you have that knowledge, it never looks like that anymore. But if you're looking at it from the outside in, I mean, I can't even imagine what it looks like. I can't even see what it looks like from the outside anymore, right? right? And I'm sure you can't. You can't see what it looks like from the outside. But if you're just kind of casually watching what it looks like it must look like an absolute disaster up here at times but it's so it's you know the 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 cliche is sausage sausage making Mm -hmm. right and to a certain extent that's true but it's very orderly behind the scenes Mm -hmm. it's chaotic in a sense in terms of the timing and all the scheduling and all that you know the deadlines and stuff like that that's the chaos Mm -hmm. but the process the process is pretty orderly yeah you know, it's almost, I don't want to say it's paint by numbers, but once you know that process, then you can pull the levers. Yeah. Well, let me fast forward. You. I've yeah. Kept you time. Sorry. I, I ramble. No, that's, you know, <laughs> that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear the, the stories and to, and to commiserate a bit, but I want to get <laughs> to what you're doing now because it's really, yeah. it's interesting stuff. I want to hear about the, your, your role what you do. And I want to hear a little bit about this conference that you just had that by all accounts from that I've heard was really successful. Um, So talk about what you're, what you're up to now. Let's talk about the most two years, stressful years of my life. (laughs) Uh, So now, like you mentioned at the top, I'm president of the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association. Mm -hmm. We are a league of coastal counties and cities and uh, obviously private sector, but you know, it was started back in 57 by that league of folks that were worried about coastal erosion, you know, back in, back in, you know, Miami beach days. So we have two broad parts of our mission and one is education and one is advocacy. So the education part, which you just mentioned is the conferences. So FSBPA has for the last 66 years held an annual beaches policy conference. And for last 30, oh shoot, I should know this, but 37 years, I think, maybe this might be the 38th, have hosted the National te- the national Conference on Beach Preservation Technology. And that brings in people from mostly the, the East Coast and, you know, the Gulf Coast. Uh, but every once in a while, we do get people from the West Coast and that. But it's a national conference, and we host it here in Florida in the spring. Well, early spring slash late, late winter. So when I got to FSBPA... I already knew this whole resilience train was coming because at Anfield, Frank and and the other partners and I, we stood up this nonprofit called Resiliency Florida. And the reason is because we had two clients, you all still have two clients, Mm -hmm. Monroe County, City of San Augustine, that came to Frank back in 2015 and said, and by the way, that's when I joined Anfield, but that was before I just before I joined, said, Everybody's talking about climate change impacts as being something we need to plan for in the future. And it is affecting us right now. Like Monroe County was doing study day flooding. 
where there was one of their neighborhoods that had literally standing salt water in their neighborhood for like two or three weeks. Hmm. Imagine the havoc that causes on everything, you know, infrastructure, cars, people, lives, you know what I mean? Like having yeah. to drive through that. And the other was City of San Agustin, whose high tides, their outfalls for their wastewater and stormwater were being inundated and they were starting to get barnacle growth <laughs> and like sea urchin growth on their outfalls. And so wow. they were talking about this thing. And so they, they asked Anfield to investigate opportunities for them to join groups that were talking about this. And there really weren't any to talk about on a statewide basis. So mm-hmm. we started Resiliency Florida and I was the first interim director of Resiliency Florida for about this first 16, 18 months, something like that, as we kind of stood up this organization with clients and non-clients and lifted it off the ground. So my heart was really in that, right? And so I knew this whole resilience train was coming down the track. So when I when I was leaving Anfield and going to FSBPA, like I said, 1957, we've been doing beach nourishment and restoration. Those are resilience projects, right? Yeah. I mean? We call it, you know, nourishment and erosion, right. but they're flood control projects, you know, and they're they're economic resilience projects, right? You know, yeah. And environment resilience for for you know sea turtles and beach birds and shorebirds, right? You know, these are all things. They're all interconnected. And so when I went there, I th- uh, I really thought I need to combine all, all aspects of my world. And so one of my main goals and visions was all right we're going to bring together this beaches world that has been incredibly successful for the last 60 at that time it was 63 64 years and we're going to bring this resilience aspect together because there's no part of the state that's not going to be affected by resilience and all these systems are interconnected but they're all siloed Mm -hmm. and so we're not talking about these as holistic methods to solve problems we're talking about okay here's how to fix roads or here's how to fix infrastructure you know wastewater infrastructure and all these things and so my vision was to bring these together or to try to bring these together under under one roof and that's the birth and evolution of the annual beaches policy conference into the florida resilience conference yeah, and you because you've combined, you've basically taken both of those yeah. organizations and and pressed it into one and created. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, there are smaller ones. I've you know I've heard of others like, but it, it has. It seems like this one has really you know grown in quickly. Yeah, in, in bounds. Yeah, well, we had four tracks. We had beaches, coastal systems, of course. You know, because that's our that's our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. I mean, we wanted to keep that that going as you know track. I mean that that is our core of what we do at FSBPA. But then we branched out and we did an energy track an infrastructure track and a hold on energy infrastructure and smart planning yeah and we had probably almost 600 people i mean last count we had it was well over 550 i don't know if we quite hit six but this was the second annual and the first one was really just a pilot program a pilot program to do proof of concept so this is the fully first fully integrated resilience conference yeah and in for folks out there, who who's your target audience? When you know we want you, you want people to participate. Like, who are you looking at to participate? I assume local government, state yeah, government. That's that's right. I mean, so if you are seeking a project or if you're seeking funding <laughs> for anything to do with resilience, whether you're private sector or public sector, this is you know this is the conference to do that. We had a huge 
thing for funding infrastructure, you know, federal, state, local, you know, how to unlock that. We had a whole brick panel on how to do building resilient infrastructure and communities. You know, that's a federal program. So what we really want this conference to grow and to evolve into is like really practical on the ground. Here's what you can do. Here are the funding mechanisms on how you accomplish that. Here's, oh, by the way, how it's interconnected with some other silo. And so if you work together, you know, there could be a multiplication effect for those for those funding dollars, you know. But really what we should be doing in the state, like every dollar that we spend in this state should be a resilient dollar, mm. whether that's housing or healthcare or education or infrastructure, whatever it should be, it should be a resilient dollar. If people, I'm going to get to a couple of the rote questions, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm yeah. going to answer, yeah. ask a couple of them. But how would people, how do people get in touch with you if they want to get involved, if they want to participate, if they want to learn about what it is that you do, what Resiliency Florida is doing, yeah. participating in the conference for the next one coming around, how do they do that? So we have a conference website, which is floridaresilienceconference.org. And if you go there, that's got information on how to be involved, you know, when the registration is open and those sort of things, all the details, the program is listed on there, all the all those sorts of details. If you want to get in, meet, in touch with me personally, I'll give out my cell phone. It's 850-727-9040. Call or text. And my email is pepper at fsbpa.com. And yeah, I mean... I'm always looking for new angles, and I, I think the the hallmark of this conference is going to be this kind of adaptive management, mm-hmm. right? We're going to go out, because resilience dollars and resilience spending is fairly new. It's tremendous. It's been, I think Wes Brooks has said, you know, he's a chief resilience officer. He said that it's been $2.5 billion over three years, and that's from zero, right? Right. From zero to three years has been a total of investment from state and local sources of $2.5 billion. That's, that's like, tremendous. You know, and a whole program has been stood up in DEP to, to do this. So, but we want this adaptive management sort of thing where you go out, you test something, you try to do an application, doesn't work, what are the hurdles, what are the friction points, come back, look at it, find a solution, go back out, test, you know, I mean, it's really, I, I want this to be a, a practical on the ground solutions oriented conference where people can get a lot out of it and they can go back, they can go back to their agencies, they can go back to their local governments, they can go back to their private sector folks and say, hey, you know, why don't we think about it a little bit different? I heard this awesome speaker here and he talked about, or she talked about X and it got me thinking and I want to look at something from a different angle mm-hmm. if we could do that in florida we're going to be all right yeah and we'll get i'll get all that information on the yeah on the notes for the the podcast so people can check those out and and go find you two questions one and you're kind of an optimist by nature in spite <laughs> of in, in spite of some challenges that you've had yeah are you optimistic about the future of the environment and natural systems in florida i am what we need to do is get on the same page, right? One of the things that we struggled with when we were standing up Resiliency Florida is climate change. So there's a couple different constituencies that obviously you can work with. So there's one that think it's, it's, it's happening, it's caused by humans. Obviously you can work with those. There's another one that believes that it's happening. They don't know whether it's caused by humans or not, but they think it's happening, right? That's, that's another. There's another one that's like, I don't know if it is or not, but I'm open to figure out 
if it is or not, mm. both changing or and or caused by humans. That is the vast majority of people in Florida. And I, I just saw a recent poll that said 61% of people think that climate change is going to affect Florida. So all you have to do is go down to southeast Florida during a king tide. You'll know that climate change is affecting Florida already, right? So, yeah, I'm an optimist. I, I think we can get it together. And I think this resilience program that's going through DEP and just the sheer amount of funding that's going to it indicates that we're going to be all right, hmm. right? It just indicates that we're taking this seriously. And when you have serious minds dedicated to serious problems, you're going to get reasonable solutions. Yeah. What advice would you give young people who are just entering or they're thinking about doing the pepperuccino thing yeah. and you get out of school and you go get involved in the environment. But what do you tell them? What advice do you give them? So I've actually mentored. I've been involved in the FSU Environmental Law Society. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've done that. I need to get back. I kind of stopped after COVID and, you know, during these life transitions, I've not been able to do it, but I want to do that. And the advice that I always gave them is just keep pushing forward. You know, like there's going to be obstacles. I mean, you know this. We all know this. Anybody that's listening to this podcast knows that there's going to be obstacles in your way. Just find novel solutions to get by them, hmm. you know? And if this is something you really want to do, like, again, my environmental ethos goes back to my childhood, hmm. but I didn't follow it until later in life. And then I decided to get back to it and it served, you know, it served me well. I would say if you have, maybe it's not the environment. I don't know. Maybe you just found this thing and you don't know whether it's environment. It's, it might, might be something else. But, like, just keep on prodding it and evaluating it and seeing if it fits. You know, like, just keep on trying and trying. And at some point, like you said earlier, like, there may be a time where you're like, this is, this is not what I want to do, right? Like the dissonance between what you're trying to do and what you're really feeling. Yeah. Like listen to that too. But yeah, just if this is something you want to do, we need you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Florida needs you. So yeah. and there's going to be work for you. Mm -hmm. So if this is something you want, like just keep on figuring out the angle that fits mm -hmm. and, and it'll it'll come. I think that's excellent advice and also an excellent place to stop as yeah. well. Pepperuccino. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having Thanks. me. I, I love it, and I love what you're doing here. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use, and don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at flwaterpod, and you can reach me directly at flwaterpod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Thanks again to Rez and Shoreline for making this podcast possible. Please be sure to check them out at www.res.us and www.cnshoreline.com. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Soren for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free. And you should definitely check the band out live or wherever you get great music. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.